0: prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we ask of you now as we reopen your Holy Scriptures, Lord, let us not hear them in vain. Let us not be distracted. Let not our attention attention be divided by things that would Turn us, Lord, away from hearing effectually the truth of your word. We pray the Holy Spirit would greatly anoint both the delivery of the truth of your word and the hearing thereof, and that there would be this day a greater sanctification in the hearts of all your saints here, Lord, by the truth of your word fashioning us, pruning us, developing and progressing us more and more into the image of your eternal Son made flesh, Christ Jesus our Lord. In his holy name we pray, for his sake, amen. Well, I invite you to take God's word and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll begin reading at verse 11 and reading from verse 11 to verse 16. Ephesians chapter 4. when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so reads the infallible, the inerrant, the authoritative and certain sure word of the living God. Growing and maturing as a Christian must never be understood as an individual isolationist affair. To understand the Christian life exclusively in terms of me, my Bible, and Jesus betrays a gross misunderstanding and misapplication of what God's Word actually reveals and teaches. To say it very plainly, God has never purposed His people to grow up in Christ as Loners. While it is true that every Christian has a personal, individual walk with God in Christ, a walk wherein they are responsible as individuals to seek the Lord in prayer, study His word, and obey His commands, yet our walk with God does not begin and end in the privacy of our prayer closets. When God saved us, He placed us in the body of Christ, Every Christian, therefore, is a living member of Christ's body, which connects them with every other member of Christ's body. And the visible manifestation of this divine membership is what we see in the New Testament organization of the local church, which is a God-ordained gathering of God's people in public sacred assembly, communing and covenanting together in membership by what God has ordered in his word. It is thus here in the context of the local church where the maturity of a Christian flourishes. Our growth as believers in Christ is a growth in community. We need each other to sharpen our faith, to mortify our sins, To keep us all pressing on in the pursuit of greater conformity to the image of Christ. This is how God has designed the Christian life to work and thrive. And this is how every Christian becomes more fruitful both in their sanctification and service. And this is why Christians who distance themselves from the local church end up stagnating and stifling whatever growth they could have because they foolishly bar themselves from the means of grace God has ordained for their spiritual benefit. A mature Christian then is not a maverick making his own road to glory, but a humble believer serving other believers as a local church walking together to the celestial city. So then, Christian growth and maturity is a group effort. Well, with this in mind, I want us to return this morning to our present study in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, where the concentration of this passage is centered on the subject of Christian unity. So far, our attention has covered the first 11 verses of this chapter. In verses 1 through 6, we have been commanded to Keep the Spirit's unity in the bond of peace. This is fleshed out by conducting our lives together as the church in such a manner that matches the calling by which God has called us in Christ. Such a walk is specified by treating each other with all humility, meekness, patience, and forbearing love. If we do not treat one another with these specific graces, then we will not experience the unity we have by the Holy Spirit in union with Christ. But going further from these imperatives, in our last study from verses seven through eleven, we have begun to see how diversity in unity leads to maturity. Diversity in unity leads to maturity. And starting to unpack this principle, we considered from verses seven to eleven that Christian unity is enhanced by our spiritual diversity. And that diversity is spelled out by the varying spiritual gifts that Christ has given to each and every member of his church. We learned, if you remember, from this two principal things. First, these gifts God has designed to serve the common good of the church as a whole. That is the whole purpose of every spiritual gift. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it is to serve the common good of the church. Second, where each Christian serves the church with their giftedness is by God's sovereign arrangement. The Lord places His people where He wants us to serve one another the best. That is God's call, that is God's choice. Now, among the many spiritual gifts Christ has given His church are a small group called the Word gifts. This is what we find described in verse 11 that Christ gave to His church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the teaching shepherds. These gifts are actually gifted persons whose sole ministry is the teaching and preaching of God's Word. To begin with, they were the apostles and prophets who laid down the foundation of the church via the New Testament scriptures. These word gifts ceased to function once the canon of the New Testament was closed. Remaining, however, to this very day are the evangelists and the teaching shepherds, who, on the one hand, preach the gospel and plant churches, and on the other hand, settle into churches for the duration of a regular ministry of teaching and preaching God's word. This morning, as we return to Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be considering verses 12 through 16, where our focus will be concentrating on the fact that Christian unity is married to our spiritual maturity. Christian unity is married to our spiritual maturity. Look with me once more at verses 12 to 16. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Taking a very broad view of this passage, what we're being shown is that the diversity of our spiritual gifts do not divide us as the church, but they unite us together with each gift contributing to unify us both in the faith and in our knowledge of Christ, whereby we leave behind our childishness to press on to greater spiritual maturity. A maturity chiefly marked by our love for Christ and one another, and a maturity which ultimately ultimately bears the perfect image of Christ himself. That is a summation of Ephesians 4, 12-16. But drawing closer in, let's unpack how all this works itself out. In the first place, notice... The word gifts given by Christ to his church are to function with one great purpose. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up the body of Christ. This was the essential role of the apostles and prophets through whom we now have the New Testament scriptures. And it is the present role of the evangelists and teaching shepherds. The evangelists, they fulfill this role in their church planting while the teaching shepherds fulfill this role as established pastors feeding God's people week after week on the teaching of God's word. What's important for us to take away from this is that equipping the saints for the work of ministry is the one great purpose which Christ has given his under shepherds to fulfill in the local church. The term Paul employs here translated equip is a verb that comes from the ancient medical world pertaining to the setting of the bones. It therefore carries the idea of restoring or making complete. Thus, the primary role of pastors in the local church is to equip believers by restoring and renewing their minds through the regular, steady ministry of God's holy word. Elaborating on this ultimate purpose in pastoring, Sinclair Ferguson wrote the following. The fellowship where the Word of God is expounded and applied in the power of the Spirit, becomes a hospital for the sick, and a gymnasium to build up spiritual strength and stamina. Here the ministry of the Word of God does its own healing, cleansing, transforming work on our sinful and broken lives. The result is that through its exposition, the preached and received Word strengthens the fellowship of believers and builds it up in unity knowledge of Christ, spiritual height, and balanced growth until it comes to spiritual maturity. But what is this teaching us about the role of pastors? What is this teaching us about the role of pastors? Well, it's saying that they are not evangelists, though they will preach the gospel, nor are they chaplains, CEOs, entertainers, or motivational speakers. Pastors are men of God given by Christ to his church to faithfully teach and preach God's word as the divine means of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. This is why Ephesians 4 and verse 11 describes them as teaching shepherds because there is nothing They do in all their ministerial labors that supersedes the stewardship Christ has given them to teach and preach his word to his sheep. Now, why am I belaboring this point? I did a lot of belaboring on this point last week, and here I am again. I'm still belaboring this point. Why? Well, I do so because the biblical identity and responsibility of pastors has been so grossly misunderstood And in many cases, replaced with something other than what Christ has actually given pastors to do in the local church. Dr. David Wells wrote about this in his classic book, The Courage to be Protestant. And it's worth quoting here at length. Listen to what Dr. Wells observed. Gone is the older model of the scholar saint one who was as comfortable with books and learning as with the aches of the soul. This was the shepherd who knew the flock, knew how to tend it, and Sunday by Sunday took that flock into the treasures of God's word. This has changed. In its place is the new celebrity style. What we typically see now is the leader who works by manipulating the feelings of the audience, enhancing his own image with personal anecdotes, modeling himself after the CEO, and adopting a domineering management style. He is completely results-oriented, pragmatic, happy to employ any technique from the secular world that will produce the desired results. And this leader has to be magnetic, entertaining, and light on the screen up front. Well, I can hear someone saying, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, hey, he'll gather a crowd, won't he? True, he will, he will, he will gather a crowd. But here's the problem. He's not a real pastor. He's not a real pastor. This is because he's not the gift Christ has given to his church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This kind of leader, David Wells describes, is a charlatan, he is a hireling, but he is not a true teaching shepherd. Not anywhere in the least. And so based on Ephesians chapter four, eleven and twelve, beloved, let's be very clear as to what God's what God's Word reveals as to the primary purpose of those men called by Christ and set apart as pastors. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And again, How do they do this? What is the primary means by which and through which they do this? It is through the teaching and preaching of God's holy word. It is the faithful exposition of scripture. Week after week after week. In the second place, we need to consider the goal of ministry equipping. The goal of ministry equipping. As pastors are fulfilling their calling to equip the saints for the work of ministry, what is the goal they're striving to meet in this endeavor? Well, here in verse 13, Paul spells out the goal in three different ways. It is to press the church toward attaining the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Let's look at each of these in turn. First, there is attaining the unity of the faith. The faith referred to here is not our personal faith in Christ, but the body of doctrinal content that makes up the revelation of Holy Scripture. It is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, which Jude says we are to contend earnestly for in the face of false teachers. As the church then is properly equipped by the faithful exposition of Holy Scripture, which in turn is enabling saints to greater service by their spiritual gifts, then The result of this biblical equipping will be a greater doctrinal unity. The church will be attaining the unity of the faith. Commenting further on this fact, John MacArthur wrote this, God's truth is not fragmented and divided against itself. And when his people are fragmented and divided, it simply means they are to that degree apart from his truth, apart from the faith of right knowledge and understanding. Only a biblically equipped, faithfully serving and spiritually maturing church can attain to the unity of the faith. Any other unity will be only on a purely human level and not only will be apart from, but in constant conflict with the unity of the faith. Second, there is attaining the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge Paul is connecting here to the Lord Jesus Christ is an experiential knowledge that comes through the means of what God's Word reveals to us about Christ. Let me put it to you this way. Since we cannot know Christ apart from the revelation given to us in Scripture, then it is only when the Scriptures are opened to us by the power of the Spirit through the instrument of teaching that our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes personal and thus experiential. This is how the church attains to a greater knowledge of the Son of God. This is why it is so crucial that pastors be faithful in their service of expounding the truth of God's Word so that the Christ we confess, the Christ we trust and follow, is not a figment of our imagination, but the true eternal living Son of God made flesh. Third, there is attaining to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This last goal to be achieved by equipping the saints for the work of ministry is one which will be frankly strived for in this life, but not fully attained until glory. In other words, the maturity to be reached as described in these words is the destination of all the church when Christ returns. This is why Paul describes this maturity as a mature manhood, which refers to a full-grown man in stark contrast to being children, as depicted in verse 14. Moreover, this mature manhood is elaborated by the, the further clause to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means very simply that all of God's children one day will grow up and be just like their elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his stature that we will take on in glory. That is our ultimate spiritual maturity as the church. We will be perfected in the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But what we must remember is the context in which each of these goals are framed. God not only ordains the end, but he also ordains the means to the end. And the means ordained of God that are aimed at fulfilling these divine goals are the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Stating this leads us to our last consideration of Ephesians 4, 12 through 16, which I will put in the form of a question. How do we know if, as a local church, we are pressing toward the divine goals which which we are being equipped for by the ministry of God's word? Again, listen to this. How do we know if, as a local church, we are pressing toward the divine goals which we are being equipped for by the ministry of God's word? The answer to this question is found in verses 14 through 16. And I'll answer this question in three different ways. First, there will be a growing stability. There will be a growing stability. Paul writes in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Under the steady, faithful ministry of God's word, will the church mature so that they will no longer be children? By the term children, Paul is depicting here both the instability and ignorance, which is so characteristic of a child. And connected to Christians, it is a childish immaturity That relates directly to doctrine. But in this case, it is their ignorance and instability as the result of false doctrine tossing them backwards and forwards like a small boat in a stormy sea. That's the imagery here. Fleshing this out, we see this kind of immaturity in Christians who can't seem to come to settled convictions as to what God's Word teaches. Instead, they're always flitting about on some new teaching by the latest preacher they've heard or the latest book they've read. And this doctrinal instability breeds a doctrinal ignorance which sets them up as easy prey for the human cunning and craftiness which false teachers work by their deceitful schemes. It's for this reason, as an example, that books in the last... 25 years like Jesus Calling or The Shack. It's the reason that books like those books have gained such an enormous wide appeal among so many professing Christians. And so why is that? Well, these books say so much about God and Christ and man, but they do so in a very crafty and deceitful way. They work to appeal to the flesh. They work to undermine and and overthrow the authority and sufficiency and the infallibility of God's word. But what is so sad is that these kinds of books will gain an audience among Christians who are both unstable and ignorant when it comes to the sound teaching of Scripture. This is why it is only the prolonged, intensive, in-depth, and steadfast exposition of God's word that delivers God's people from such damaging immaturity. Under the weekly ministry of the word, there will be a growing spiritual stability in believers. The word of God will seep into our instincts so that we sense the superficial and detect teaching that is sinister and dangerous no longer spiritually naive about everything we hear in the visible church. But we do become more critical about the things we hear taught. That is not a bad thing. That is not a bad thing. You know, it's interesting, Christians Christians through the years that, that I've known, Christians I've pastored, who come to see the greater truth of God's word and especially as it's wonderfully and beautifully fleshed out in the reformed faith they start finding themselves without being told to but they just, they just start naturally naturally finding themselves listening more critically to everything they hear coming out of pulpits when before they never did before they didn't even care but now They're listening with more of, they say, critical, I say, discerning. They're more discerning about what they're hearing. Indeed, they're being more like the Bereans examining the Scriptures to see if these things they're hearing are even true. And there are those professing Christians who will say, well, no, you shouldn't do that. That's judgmental. No, that's not. No, that is not judgmental. My friend, that is necessary. That is necessary. Because there are so many people in the visible church at large who are so deceived by the cunning craftiness of deceitful false teaching and they don't even know it. Hence, it's deception. They don't realize it. They don't realize it. And, of course, I mean, if you really talk to these people professing Christians, and find out, you know, what is the depth of their knowledge of Scripture, their understanding of the corpus of God's Word, well, we all know their knowledge is so very shallow. So very shallow. Because they are depending so much on what's coming from here and never, ever checking anything out for themselves. And that is dangerous. That is dangerous because understand false teachers know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. They're not ignorant. They're not ignorant of their scheme, of their agenda. They know what they're doing. They know what they're after. And they're just simply trying to gain a following of terribly naive Christians to pay attention to them. Second, we'll also see that there will be a confessing integrity. Not only a growing stability by the faithful teaching of Scripture, but there will be a confessing integrity. A confessing integrity. Reading verse 15, look at this. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. As the constant teaching and exposition of scripture will deliver us from both the instability and ignorance of doctrinal error. The fruit of this deliverance for the church will be a greater growth in Christ, which is demonstrated by speaking the truth in love. Now what does this mean? While there are those who believe that speaking the truth in love should be understood as living out the truth in love, yet if we compare how the Greek term for speaking the truth is used first in classical Greek combined with its use in the Greek Septuagint and then looking at the use of this very same word in Galatians 4.16 where Paul writes, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? we have to come to the conclusion that speaking the truth in love is not referring to living out the truth, as biblically important as that is, but rather it is an exhortation for Christians to be a confessing church with the content of their testimony to be the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. Furthermore, we have to see here in verse 15 a very sharp contrast to the false teachers in verse 14. The false teachers confess false doctrine in a very deceptive manner. Thus they do not speak the truth but communicate falsehood and their motive is never in love but always in deception to take advantage of those who listen to them. The church, on the other hand, under the steady teaching of God's word, will grow up in Christ to proclaim the truth of Christ in love. And it's really important to note here in the text that when we confess the truth, it is always to be in love. It is always to be in love. This means that love for Christ, love for his gospel, love for the church, and love for the world that desperately needs to hear the truth of Christ This love should be what drives us and motivates us in all our confessing the truth. In other words, it is not a wishy, washy, sappy, sentimental, effeminate kind of love that will sell out and sacrifice the truth for the appeasement of man. Rather, it is love that according to the New Testament abhors evil and clings to what is good. It is a love that does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. It is love that is holy and godly and righteous. This is the love that drives us as the church to confess and proclaim the truth of God's word. And this is the love that will flourish. Flourish in us as the church as we grow up in Jesus Christ. Third, there will be a progressing unity. There will be a progressing unity. Now look with me in verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If there is ever a text of scripture that proves emphatically that our spiritual growth as Christians is a group effort, Ephesians 4.16 is that very text. Using word imagery from the growth of the human body, Paul is teaching us something very obvious. Physical organs do not mature in isolation from each other. Physical organs do not mature in isolation from each other. The only maturing that ever takes place is in the context of a growing body. A growing body. Where organs do not work for each other's good, growth is inevitably stunted. But where each one does its share, the whole body grows. That is the general teaching of Ephesians 4.16. Now, in the larger context of Ephesians chapter 4, we're seeing that our spiritual growth comes from our head, who is Christ. But our Lord Jesus disseminates this growth through his gifted ministers teaching the word and thereby equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And in consequence of this service, each part of the body is enabled to work properly, that is, doing what God's called him to do, which in turn makes the body grow, which builds itself up in love. And since love, according to Colossians 3.14, binds everything together in perfect harmony, then as the church builds itself up in love, then it will progress in greater and more visible unity. Well, drawing this study to a close, let me leave you this morning with at least three very viable lessons that we should take away from Ephesians 4, 12 through 16. The first lesson is this. Without gifted pastor teachers filling their God-given responsibility to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the growth of the church will be stifled. Since spiritual growth and maturity takes every member of Christ's body doing their part as God has called, then those men set apart by Christ to preach and teach his word must not let anything supersede this work. This means that the attitude and conviction of pastors must be that expressed by the apostles in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, where the apostles said to the church at Jerusalem, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what was the context of that? Why, Why did the apostles feel that they needed to say that to the Jerusalem church? I mean, didn't the Jerusalem church understand that? Well, the context of those words by the apostles was a domestic need in the church that the people brought to the apostles to handle. And the apostles, they put the domestic need back on the people. And counseled them to choose among themselves the right men for this task. Why? It's because the apostle said, God has not called us to wait on tables but to preach his word. This same conviction, beloved, must be in every pastor teacher. This same conviction. But more so this same conviction needs to be respected by the church. Otherwise, the growth of the church will indeed be stifled. Lesson number two. Stunted fellowship is always caused by either a lack of truth or love, if not both. Where the principal ministry of the word is lacking, the knowledge of the truth will be diminished and the ability to develop maturity will be bankrupt. Moreover, where there is no thoroughgoing submission to the word. Love will be lacking and any growth will be misshapen and unlike Jesus Christ. But where under the ministry of the word, truth and love go hand in hand, growth is assured and grace prevails. And lastly, lesson number three. And this is going to get very personal. Since we need each other, for our spiritual growth as a whole, then we must give ourselves to our own daily growth in Christ through His Word. Let me say that again. Since we need each other for our spiritual growth as a whole, then we must give ourselves to our own daily growth in Christ through His Word. While I made the case, and made it quite strongly at the very beginning of this sermon, that Christian growth and maturity is not an individual isolationist affair, and I still stand by that, yet this fact must never be misunderstood as giving Christians a license to slack off in their own personal walk with Christ. The Scottish Presbyterian pastor of the early 19th century, Robert Murray McShane, once told his congregation in Dundee, Scotland, "My people's greatest need is my personal holiness." I I just I have to say it in Scottish. I'm sorry. It just comes out. My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Think about those words. This conviction in McShane should be the conviction in every single Christian. Not just in the pastor, but in every single Christian. This should be our conviction. Our personal walk with Christ matters to every member of the church, the local church where we belong. If we slack off in our daily devotion and obedience to the Lord, listen... It doesn't just hurt us. It hurts everybody else. It hurts the rest of the church. Why is that? Because we're the body of Christ. And remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12? If one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Just one member suffers, the rest of us suffer. We are the body of Christ. We are in this together. Our maturity and unity as the body of Christ, therefore, is dependent on whether or not we will all individually walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called by God. And so, it matters what I do at home. It matters how I treat my spouse at home. It matters, how, it matters how I treat my children, if I have children. If I'm a parent with kids, it matters how I treat them. It matters if, as an individual Christian, I'm daily in my proverbial prayer closet. It matters. It absolutely matters. Am I much with God today? Today and today is not referring to the Lord's day, I'm talking about Monday. I'm talking about Tuesday and Wednesday. It matters. Am I much with God today? And am I leading my, my spouse? Am I leading well, I my husband, obviously my wife. If I'm leading my wife. Am I leading her to be much with God? Am I leading my children in the word of God? Why does all that matter, beloved? What does that have to do with all of us here? What you do at home, what does that have to do with all of us here? Well, I'll tell you. Because what you are at home is going to show up here. It's going to show up here. You cannot hide it. Maybe a couple of Sundays you might be able to hide it. But eventually, it shows itself shows itself. You see, you cannot fake it for that long. Where we really are in our walk with the Lord will be made visible when we are in the presence and community of other Christians. It will. Are we pointing our fellow Christians, are we pointing them to Christ by our words and deeds, or are we pointing them to the, to, to the flesh and thereby not promoting unity but rather promoting division? Honestly, I mean, what is it that we're leaving with each other every Lord's Day? You see, I can't be leaving you with more of God and less of me if I haven't been much with God the other six days of the week leading up to today. Because if I'm far away from the Lord the other six days of the week, do not think we're going to do catch-up Sunday morning and all is going to be better. I got news for you. All you're doing is faking it. You're just faking it. The bottom line of what this final lesson and principle is pressing on us is this, beloved. Listen to me. As Christians, we need each other. We need each other. I know that there are those Christians who, you know, who who, who come to a church, come to a church for the first time and you know, and, and their attitude is, well, um, I'm here to help you. I don't need any of your help but I am here to help you. (laughs) I mean, I've I've known Christians like this. And and I just have one word to them, repent. Repent. Because that is arrogant, that is presumptuous, and that is in violation of this word. That's in total violation of God's word. No, no. We need each other. That's the way Jesus Christ has designed the church. That is the way his body is meant to function. We do this together. We do this together because, because listen, if it's not together, it won't work. It won't work. So... Let's take this to heart. Let, let's, let's make the application. Okay, here's the application. Let's commit ourselves. Monday is coming. How then am I going going to begin the day? Monday is coming. It counts. Tomorrow counts. Because what you do tomorrow, what you do tomorrow in your walk with God individually is going to affect me next week. It's going to affect me next week, good or bad, it's going to affect me. So, am I going to redeem the time? As Ephesians 5 clearly teaches because the days are evil. Am I I going to take every necessary step between now and next Sunday to pursue holiness so that I will be a greater benefit for the spiritual welfare and maturity of my fellow Christians? Or, Or am I just going to live for the world Monday through Saturday then on Sunday show up and fake it? Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 says this to the church, to all of us. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That, that verb, consider, means to be mindful, pay attention to. But notice it says one another, one another. So that means it's not just the responsibility of the pastor to stir you up to love and good works. You have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to stir everybody else up to love and good works. This is a group effort. This is a community effort. This is how the body of Jesus Christ works. We're to stir each other up to love and good works. To be so mindful to know how to, how to stir up, how to provoke each other to love and good works. But guess what? If I haven't been much with God the other six days of the week, you think I'm going to be ready to stir everybody else up to love and good works? Actually, I think I need somebody to be stirring me up to love and good works. Because I'm in a mess. We need each other to be To listen, to be personally faithful to the Lord so that we can all grow together as God has called us to live and act as His people. This is the way God designed it, the way God has made it. This is how the church functions. And as I've said many times in the past, there are no lone rangers in the kingdom. There isn't. We have to have one another. You need my walk with the Lord. I need your walk with the Lord and where it's at to build each other up greater in the faith. So, brothers and sisters, do not dismiss your responsibility. Count it a privilege, count it a joy. Do this out of gladness of heart to the Lord and to one another. But truly, this is really a privilege. What a privilege that we have as fellow Christians. Each and every time we meet, every week, that we, that we have this kind of an opportunity to be such a benefit to the other for their spiritual growth to bring them closer to Christ, to give them more of Christ, and they, us. Can you imagine if a local church was really faithfully engaged in this with consistency, what the health of that church would be? I mean, we wouldn't be perfect. We're striving toward that, which we will not reach to glory, but, but we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about healthy, spiritually healthy. We need that. We need that for each other. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for here at the end sobering us to how that what we are and how we live away from this fellowship of this communion of saints matters as much as how we live before each other when we are gathered together. And I do earnestly pray, blessed Father, for each and every one of your people here gathered today, that you will work in our hearts a greater, a more powerful, a deeper sanctification that we all need That our personal daily pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of godliness, our pursuit of love and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit would grow, would mature. And that in all truthfulness, Lord, we would be able as your people to say in true and honest confession that we have been much with you. So that when we come together as the church, there is a readiness and an eagerness in all our hearts to be so mindful of each other that we're looking for ways in how to stir one another up to greater love and to greater good works. Father, we pray that you will so work in our hearts by the power of the Blessed Spirit who indwells us through the mediation of Christ to be more faithful to what you have clearly called and commanded us and how we are to treat each other as a growing body of Christ in this local church. For the sake of our Lord Jesus, we ask all of these things. In his name we pray, amen and amen.